Good morning, Bethesda. Put your seatbelts on and let's get ready. I'm going to read a very selection of scriptures for you from the book of Genesis. I'll be reading Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 4, chapter 13, verse 1, then 5 through 14. Then I'll skip over to chapter 14 and read verses 12 and 16, and then chapter 19, verse 1, and then 36 through 39. The title of this message, and this is unusual for me, I usually don't do sermon titles, is a lot to think about, with a lot of emphasis on the name Lot. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen, and away from your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. So Abram went, as the Lord had said to him, and Lot went with him. As a submitted family member, he adopted the lifestyle and the belief system of Abram. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Chapter 13, verse 1. Abram went up from Egypt, he, his wife, and everything he had, and Lot went with him. The preposition eth is used here in the Hebrew. This means that when Lot went with Abraham this time, it wasn't the same as last time. Now Lot is going to Abram as an equal. Abram is no longer his authority. So Abram went up from Egypt, Lot went with him, and they went into the Negev. Chapter 13, verses 5 through 14. Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land could not support their living together because their possessions were too great for them to remain together. Moreover, quarreling arose between Abram's and Lot's herdsmen. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. Abram said to Lot, Please let us not have quarreling between me and you or between my herdsmen and yours, since we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land there in front of you? Please separate yourself from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Lot looked up and saw the whole plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. So Lot chose all the plain of the Jordan for himself, and Lot traveled eastward. Thus they separated themselves from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, and Lot lived in the cities of the plain, pitching his tent towards Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, committing great sins against the Lord. The Lord spoke to Abram after Lot had moved away from him. Chapter 14, verse 2. But as they, a group of kings who were attacking Sodom, left, they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Verse 16. And he, Abram, recovered all the goods and brought back his nephew Lot with his goods together with all the women and the other people. Chapter 19, verse 1. Two angels came to Sodom that evening when Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. Lot saw them, got up to greet them, and prostrated himself on the ground. Verse 16, but he, Lot, hesitated. So the men, the angels, seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord is upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. Let's pray. Father, in the most excellent name of Jesus, we bow our hearts before you, and we ask, mighty spirit of the living God, would you speak to us this morning? We are desperate to hear what you might say to us. Father, we are asking you to convict us of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. 
For asking you, my Father, to let your word have transformational power and effect in our lives today. We are asking you to take our hearts, Father, and let the fire from off your own altar ignite us with that which is of your kingdom. Father, we are asking you to take the compromise and the complacency in our lives and turn it around to be a red-hot, on-fire relationship with the Son of the living God. So let your kingdom come in these moments. Give us ears to hear what you would speak to us by your Spirit. And dear Father in heaven, let us not be hearers only, but let us leave this place and be doers of your word. For it is in the excellent name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. About a decade ago, give or take a few years, I loved to ride on the Trinity Trail, ride my bike on the Trinity Trail. And I had a friend that went with me. Her name was Angel. And Angel and I were riding our bikes down Trinity Trail. And anyone who's ever been on Trinity Trail, you know that there's a sidewalk area for bikers, for walkers, for kids whose parents aren't watching what they're doing and they're playing in the middle of that. And to the right, there's usually gravel and rocks. And to the left, there's a steep drop that lands you right into the Trinity River itself. Well, Angel and I are riding our bikes and we've got a good clip of speed going. And I hear a duck quacking down at the river. And I know better than to look at that duck. But Angel didn't. She looked down toward the duck, and when she looked down toward the duck, everything, her, her bike, everything went tumbling down the side of that cliff toward the duck, and she barely missed dumping herself into the Trinity River. Something that I learned from that event vicariously through Angel is that we steer toward where we stare. Whatever it is that we're looking at, that's what we're going to move toward. We steer toward what we stare at. We're going to find in the story of Lot, in this narrative, we're going to find a man that looked at the wrong thing and steered his entire life in the wrong direction. But let's back up. In chapter 12, verse 1, God tells Abram, leave your family, leave your kinsmen, leave everything, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And the next thing we see, it says, and Lot left, and Abram left, and took Lot with him. How many of you know that when God tells you to separate yourself from something, it doesn't matter how painful it is, it doesn't matter how good it is, that, you're, that thing that you're being told to separate from, you had better separate if you read through the book of Genesis, you'll find that there are ten times when God had Abram separate himself from a variety of different things. This is one of those times. Separate yourself from Lot. But Abram doesn't do it, and he takes Lot with him. Now, it is peculiar to me that the minute Lot goes with Abram, God doesn't speak to Abram again until Abram separates himself from Lot. Listen to me. Hear me well. Some of you are crying out to hear a word from God. Some of you are saying, God, speak to me. I need to sense your presence. I need to know your direction for my life. I need to know the next step that I'm supposed to take. But yet you will not hear him until you get rid of Lot, whatever your Lot might be. 
Maybe it's a television program that you're watching. Maybe it's an attitude that you have. Maybe it's a disposition of failure or compromise in your life. Maybe it's bitterness and unforgiveness. But we all have lots that try to attach themselves to us. And we will not move on with God. We will not hear from God until we let go of Lot. So Lot went with him. The first time Lot went with him, he went submitted to Abram, submitted to his lifestyle, submitted to his belief system. And under the authority of Abram, Lot prospered. Lot prospered to the point that his herds and his flocks grew to such a proportion that the land could no longer sustain his herds and Abram's herds. And quarreling began to break out between the people that worked for Lot and the people that worked for Abram. It was so bad that Abram finally went to Lot and said, please separate yourself from me. Isn't it amazing how that very thing that we didn't think we could live without, when God begins to let us taste the fruit of our disobedience, we'll say, please, God, get this thing out of my life. I don't want this anymore. I want this thing gone in my life. It's no longer attractive. It is no longer charming to me. It is, a, it is an albatross about my neck, and I cannot move on with you until this thing is gone. So finally, Abram separates himself from Lot. Look at Abram's attitude. He said, Lot, go anywhere you want to go. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. Look at the attitude of Abraham. Abraham knew that his blessing came from the Lord, not a geographic location. He knew that wherever he was, that's where God was going to be. It is the presence of God that makes all the difference. Our blessing doesn't come from an individual or from a place or from our job. Our blessing comes from the Lord and from his presence. And the minute you start looking to someone or something to fill that place in your life and you see them as the source of your blessing, you are setting yourself up for failure because only God can provide for us. It's interesting to note that during this quarreling, during these arguings, that the Perizzites and Canaanites are mentioned. I think it would behoove us to realize that through the dealings of our daily lives, the world is watching us. Anything that we say or do, it is not said and it is not done in private. Everything that we say and everything that we do is done with the world watching us. The Canaanites and the Perizzites are all around. And I tell you, while they may be saying one thing with their mouth, in their heart, they're saying, please be real. Please be who you say you are. Please be a man or a woman of love. Please show me what faith and hope really looks like. Show me how to deal with life in a righteous manner. Church, the world's watching us. And it's time for us to act in a way that is in keeping with the word of God and with the commandments and with the moving of his spirit. So Lot, it is said, lifts up his eyes. Now, this is an intentional, well-thought-out action. This means that he is going to look, and he's looking for something specific. This is not an idiom that's unique to Lot. We find people lifting up their eyes multiple times throughout the pages of Scripture. You're going to find in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is going to be taking his son, his only son Isaac, and he's going to lift up his eyes, and he's going to see Moriah the place where he's supposed to offer his son. 
There are times when you look up and what you will see will not be pleasing to you. It will not be pleasing to your flesh. There are times when you look up and the course and the direction that God has for you will be a painful one. This is not a feel-good moment. This is not warm, fuzzy goosebumps. This is reality, folks. God calls us to walk difficult roads at different times in our lives. And so Abram looks up and he sees Moriah and he goes in the direction in obedience that God has given to him. In that same chapter, Genesis 22, he is about to offer up Isaac and it says he lifts up his eyes again and this time he sees a ram caught in the thicket and he says, Jehovah Jireh, my Lord God, my provider. He looked up and he was obedient. He looked up and he saw the provision of the Lord. In the book of Joshua, Joshua's going to look up. He's going to be confronted with Jericho. He's going to have a ragtag band of wanderers and nomads who are not professional soldiers, and they're about to go against one of the most militant forces in the ancient world. They're about to go up against Jericho. And it says, and Joshua lifted up his eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord, and he knew that God was on their side. Church, there are times when what you're facing will be bigger than what you can possibly take care of, of your own abilities and talent. That's when it's time to look up and see that it's the Lord that's on your side. It's time for you to know that you are not alone, that there's a mighty host of God's army encamped all around you. Nebuchadnezzar, in the book of Daniel, He's lifted up himself in arrogance and pride to such an extent that he has lost his mind. And he's out in the middle of a field eating grass like a cow. And scripture tells us, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He lifted up his eyes to heaven acknowledging that he is not all that. Acknowledging that he is not the sole source of power and authority in his life. He lifted up his eyes and acknowledged that God was the true living God and his right mind returned to him. Some of you are filled with anxiety and fear and panic. Some of you are overcome with a sense of failure. Some of you are undone on the inside. It's time for you to look up to the God of heaven and let him restore back to you a sense of stability. Let him be the one who keeps you in the storms. I don't think we should be saying, don't fear the storm. I think we should be saying with one voice, storm, you better be afraid of us. Because it's a mighty God that stands with us. In the New Testament, Jesus is going to look up. And he's going to see people helpless, hungry, wounded, and lost. And when he looks up and sees these people, he's going to decide that Calvary is worth it. In the parable of the waiting father, the waiting father looks up and sees from a distance his son coming home. Church, do you get it? We see what we look for. If you are looking for failure, it will not be difficult for you to find it. If you're looking to be offended, just breathe in and out for about three minutes and it will be there. If you are looking for fear, watch television. It's all around us. If you're looking for unforgiveness, just think about the things that have hurt you for just a minute and it will be there. You will see what you look for. Psalm 121, I think, pulls it all together for, it, for us. I lift up mine eyes unto the hills. 
Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. There are three things in the Old Testament that hills can represent. Hills can represent government. I lift up my eyes and I look to the government. If you're looking to the government, I don't care if it's Democrats or Republicans or something in the middle. The government is not the answer to this country's problems. If you're looking to the government for salvation, it's not there. Second thing that hills can represent. Hills were the places where the Baals and the Asherahs were worshipped. Maybe the psalmist was saying, I look to these other gods. I see them. I see the Asherahs and I see the Baals and the Moleks and the Mardukes and all the other gods of the Canaanites. But my help doesn't come from them. Church, your help doesn't come from old wives' tales and fables. Your help does not come from horoscopes and astrologists. Your help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The third thing, hills is where the enemy would attack. Maybe the psalmist was saying, I look to the hills and I see the enemies like ants marching toward me. I look to the hills and I see giants that are too big for me to deal with and they're coming toward me. I look to the hills, but my help's not there. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. When you look up, you can see a lot of different things. But when you look up, you need to set your heart on seeing Jesus. When you look up, you need to set your heart on seeing the maker of heaven and earth because he does not sleep and he does not slumber and he will not let your foot slip. The government can't say that. The false gods of this world cannot say that. The armies that would march against you can't say that. Only God can make that claim. What are you looking for? Whatever it is, you will eventually see it. If you're looking to be offended, then offense is what you're going to see. If you're looking for a reason to be angry, hurt, and betrayed, you will eventually find it. But if you're looking for Jesus, then he is what you will see. So Lot lifts up his eyes. The next thing he does, it's only logical. It's rational. He sees. And what he sees is a well-watered land, a land that looked like the garden of the Lord. You know, Eve had this same experience in Genesis chapter 3. She looked at the fruit, and she saw that it was pleasing to the eyes, good for food, and desirable to make one wise. She looked, and she saw what she was looking for. If there's any confusion about what you're looking for as an individual, then simply ask yourself this question, what am I seeing? Because what you see consistently is a direct reflection of what's in your heart. We know the scripture is a man thinks, so is he. I think we could also say, as a woman sees or hears, so is she, so is he. He chose. He looked, he saw, he chose. This is an intellectual decision. Well watered, close to a thriving city. Eve did the same thing. Again, it was good for food, pleasing to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. It's in the intellect that rationalization and justification commences and the battle for righteousness is often won or lost on that field. If we can take what we know to be wrong and displeasing to the Lord and justify and rationalize our actions, then the choice is pretty much made. 
The choice is intellectual. It's also emotional. Lot's attracted to the beauty, just like Eve is attracted to the beauty of the fruit. He's attracted to the beauty and the convenience of the land. When one has looked and rationalized, and now they've brought their emotions into the decision, that choice has already been made. And then the will comes into play. The intellect and the emotions collide in a choice. We know this phrase all too well. Sin will take you where you never wanted to go. It will keep you far longer than you ever wanted to stay, and it will cost you more than you were ever willing to pay. And then we see that Lot pitches his tent towards Sodom. When he pitches his tent towards Sodom, that means he opens his family and all of his family life to what's going on in Sodom. All the sounds, all the sights, all the attractions of Sodom are now flooding into his family. And he doesn't stay there. After he pitched his tent in Sodom, we next find him living in Sodom. It's not just Sodom in his tent. Now his tent is in Sodom. This is so reminiscent of Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, who does not stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. The first time we find Lot pitching his tent, he is walking in the counsel of his own evil, deceived heart. Whenever you walk in the counsel of your own heart and you have not gone to the Word and you have not gone to prayer and you've not sought wise Christian counsel in the body of Christ and you are only going by the desires of your own heart, it will not lead you to a place that is good. You will walk in the counsel of the ungodly. But it never stops with walking. Now he's living or standing in Sodom. Standing in Sodom means he's there and he's hearing everything and he's engaging in the conversations and probably engaging in the activities. Now he's gone from walking to standing in Sodom. And the next time we find, find Lot, he is sitting at the gate of the elders in Sodom. Sitting in the seat of the scornful. The scornful are those individuals who do not respect the name and the word of the one true living God. They do not have any respect for the, for the Lord God of Israel. They do not have respect for righteousness. They disdain it and make fun of it. And they mock the ways and the precepts of righteousness. And Lot sitting there with his elders. He walked. He stood and he sat. I think, church, that as a culture, we find ourselves doing much of the same thing. We walk in the counsel of that which is not right. We stand in the paths of sinners, and we sit in the seat of scoffers. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, it says that the soul of righteous Lot was vexed day and night because of the wickedness of Sodom. In my mind, I'm thinking, if his soul was that vexed, why didn't he pack up and leave? But I can look into the mirror of my own actions, and there are times when my soul has been vexed because of compromise, and it was too hard for me to leave, and it took a divine act of God's sovereign grace to separate me from that which was wrong. I get it. His soul was vexed day and night. This is the person, the person in the church 
who is so vexed with conviction that they'll scream at the righteous, don't judge me. Or to the church that reaches out to them in love and compassion. They're all just a bunch of hypocrites. With all the love and compassion in my heart, I say to you this morning, do not mistake the conviction of the Holy Spirit with the vexation of your own compromised soul with being judged by the church or a Christian in particular. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation says you're guilty and you're a lost cause and there's no hope for you. Conviction says you've done wrong, but there's a way out. And for every person in this morning, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There's convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And if you are vexed in your soul this morning, it is an easy fix. Turn to Jesus and let him bring his cleansing and deliverance and salvation to your heart and life. Do not confuse your own spiritual hypocrisy of compromise and complacency with genuine care and concern of Christians who are doing their often imperfect best to reach out to you with love and compassion. I've been in the church for almost 40 years, and my experience with the church is a loving body of people who love and show compassion without discrimination and are patient with those of us who are struggling to find our path in Jesus. That's the church. This talk of judgment and criticism and hypocrisy, I don't know where people are finding that, but it's not in any of the churches that I've been a part of. So here's the problem. We all have our tents pitched towards Sodom. They're all pitched in the wrong direction. In the book of Leviticus, the only way that you could ever get your tent oriented in the right direction was the Day of Atonement. One time a year, you could get your tent oriented in the right direction. But by the time the 12 months had lapsed, you needed to go through the whole process all over again. In Romans chapter 8, Paul's going to reflect this and echo it. And he's going to say, all oh, the things that I want to do, those are the things I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I end up doing. There is nothing that is in my flesh. There is nothing, no good thing that dwells. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin? If that was the final cry and the sermon ended there, we could all go home today depressed, overcome, and without any real hope or joy. But thanks be unto God, it doesn't end there. Paul goes on to say, Oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of sin? But thanks be unto God through Christ Jesus. Folks, here's the deal. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. And the Word pitched His tent toward us. Your translation is going to say, dwelt among us. But if you look at it in the Greek, literally, He pitched His tent toward us. Do you see it? Our tents were pitched in the wrong direction. But God, in His infinite mercy and grace, came and pitched His tent toward me. So now, I don't have to yearly go through some process to get my tent oriented in the right direction for just a minute. I can stay in the right direction because of Jesus, because of this great salvation that he offers to us and the infilling and empowering presence of his Holy Spirit. There are two groups in this place this morning. Group number one, you were born with your tent pitched towards Sodom. And you are still pitched towards Sodom. It's an easy fix. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but would be saved. Jesus has come to invade your tent with his presence and his glory and get you turned around in the right direction. But there's another group listening to this sermon this morning. You're that group that's vexed in your soul. You know that where you are and where you're supposed to be are two different places. You know that you have tasted and touched the sweet things of the Lord Jesus. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet somehow Sodom calls to you like the lovers called to Gomer, Hosea's wife, and you can't resist. And you keep going back. Maybe what you go back to is a sense of failure and self-pity. Maybe it's offense and unforgiveness and bitterness. Maybe it's an addiction or a habit. You know what it is. Do you know that Jesus offers hope for us as well? We do not have to live with a vexation of spirit. We do not have to live with our hearts wrestling and being torn and tormented within us. The book of 1 John says, if we sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And if we will confess our sin, he'll be faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In closing, there are four things that you can do to keep your tent pitched in the right direction. It's not rocket science. It's simple Bible. Number one is prayer. Because when you pray, you acknowledge and look to God as your source. And if you're looking to God as your source, He will meet you there and respond to you through that time of communication. Prayer is important. Personal, individual, private prayer as well as corporate prayer. You ought to be here on Sunday nights at 6 o'clock and join this body for an hour of prayer. Prayer. Worship. In worship, he becomes the object of our affection. And we're also told in the book of 1 John chapter 4 that when we behold him, we become like him. And in worship, we behold him by faith. And we begin to be transformed more and more into his image. Prayer, worship, scripture. The book of James tells us that when we read the word of God, it's like a man looking in the mirror and we see ourselves as we really are. But we're also encouraged to know that where we are is not where we're going to be. That he's working in our lives and he started something in us and he's going to see it through to completion. Prayer, worship, scripture, coming together with the body of Christ. This is not something that can happen on a computer or a television screen. This is something that needs to happen, rubbing shoulders with other people who have like mind and like faith with you. Men and women who love Jesus too. Men and women who will pray for you and strengthen you and encourage you. So let's bring it down to this. Where is your tent pitched? What direction do you have your life pointed in? Because it will determine where you steer your life. Where you're looking, what you're seeing, will ultimately determine where you go. I want to ask you a very non-emotional, non-hyped-up question. How many of you would stand with me this morning and say, Marty, I need for Jesus to make sure my tent's pointed in the right direction. Just stand right where you are. Thank you. Father, you see your sons and your daughters. Lord Jesus, you pitched your tent toward us. 
You are Emmanuel, God for us, God with us, God on our side. We ask you this morning, my Father, empower us with your Holy Spirit. Enable us, my Father, to turn our lives in the direction of your kingdom, that we might give you glory, give you honor. Father, forgive us for the times that we've turned towards Sodom. Forgive us, Lord God, for the times that we have oriented ourselves toward those things that are not righteous and pleasing to you. We ask you to come this morning, Father, and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Father, enlarge our tents and cause us to turn toward you for the honor and the glory of Jesus himself. Amen.